This is a Rocket Audio production. When you hear this turn of phrase, this vision, a world in which every birth is wanted, sounds quite grand, doesn't it? We're used to here on Rocket Fuel, the podcast that looks at youth culture and youth marketing, hearing about social media platforms, hearing about new marketing strategies, even hearing about what what motivates children. But looking at this youth audience, sometimes there is never a more important decision than actually procreating, actually giving birth, actually bringing a new life into this world. The mission of Mary Stopes International is children by choice, not chance. And Mary Stopes International is an incredibly worthy cause. Jennifer Gassner has been at Mary Stopes for the last seven years. She currently has the title of Marketing Director at Mary Stopes International. So she works building together a number of different territories. And in this interview, we find out about different media habits across a number of different territories. We find out how Mary Stokes International got started and we find out how they're moving into their own product ranges as well and have had to do that in order to get their message heard. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. So have a listen as we talk to Jennifer Gassner about her background. We talk to Jen about the work at Mary Stokes International and we also ask Jen Gassner from Mary Stopes International for her practical insights into talking to youth audiences, her rocket fuel. So the first thing to say is Jennifer Gassner, Marketing Director at Mary Stopes International. Thank you so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. Thank you. It's very fun to be here. Good. Um, Jennifer, Let's start with learning about you and your journey. Tell us about your journey that's taken you thus far to to Mary Stokes. Uh, Bring it to life for us. Yeah, Uh, my journey is a very winding one uh, and not (laughs) typical at all. I I actually studied to be a diplomat uh, and worked at the State Department. I'm I'm American, if you can hear from my voice. Mm. Um, I I quickly discovered I I wasn't keen on working in a giant bureaucracy. So um, I changed tactics. Um, I actually went to China and I worked in the private sector. Um, They ended up moving me into a role that was uh, doing marketing for their, their, one of their big technology projects. Um, I jumped from there to another technology company. Uh, Again, they put me into marketing. I wasn't actually necessarily what I thought I was going to be doing, but it seemed to be where I ended up. Um, I went from there actually into sales and I did advertising sales for a magazine group. Um, And that took me through to kind of, you know, mid twenties when I just had a realization of um, this has been interesting, but it's not right for me. And I, I, you know, working for um, someone else's profit is not really motivating me Um, working on commission. And, you know, once I make enough where I'm comfortable, I I don't actually care that much. I'm not a greedy person. Um, And in the end, the motivation wasn't really there. So I, I did a bit of soul searching and, um, and I realized that, you know, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a doctor. And I kind of thought to myself, can I step back and take a step towards what I had wanted without losing a lot of the international work and um, the other work I'd done? And I en- ended up um, going in- into public health. So I did a master's in public health. Um, and wow. my focus in that was actually health communication. So I went at it from a very different angle. Um, and funny enough, uh, in one of my first presentations in graduate school, uh, which was about an advertising campaign for condoms that we had mm. made up for this presentation, um, wow. one of my professors came up and said, this is what you should be doing. You know, this is like, this is you. And he actually recommended me to, to another organization called PSI, which is very, very big, um, we call social marketing organization. Um, and I ended up interning with them and then getting, getting a job with them after I graduated. And that's where I started. And I, Again, I started out as a program manager, um, managing programs in their China program. I moved into a regional marketing role, and then that changed to a global marketing role. And it's gone from there. So um, it's kind of funny because I I don't have a marketing degree. Um, I have a health communication degree. Um, But I I like to say marketing is uh, not a skill set. It's a mindset. And I think anybody can actually be a great marketer. And I've met lots of people with lots of degrees in marketing who are terrible. (laughs) So I think it's an encouragement point that you don't have to study marketing to be to be good at it. 
Um, we're going to dive deeper into, into Mary Stokes International in kind of the second section, but bring to life the scope of your role. I mean, what does it involve on a, on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so my role is specifically focused on our international programs, so I don't um, I don't support the UK program, they have a separate office. Um, we have programs in 37 countries around the world that um, are mainly supported through donor funding. Um, and my team is there to help with um, strategies for reaching new clients. So demand generation, um, I, I actually break it into three key buckets in terms of what my team does. Um, yeah. The first one is behavior change, um, and which is not always about um, uh, about direct demand generation. Often it's about creating a better environment for people to make healthier decisions. Um, so it could be social norm change, for example, which, which can look very different. Um, the second is reputation building. So my team will support on um, our brand, you know, making sure we're consistent in how our clinics look and feel, um, helping our teams understand what the brand stands for and how they can live that, uh, making sure that we're delivering on our brand promise. Um, and the third one is your traditional kind of driving uptake. And that Go, cuts across um, both products and services. So we, we do both. Um, and, you know, a lot of development of strategies there, launch pro, uh, launches. And within that also, we have um, contact centers, which are obviously call centers, which also go beyond calls. So we, we, we increasingly see a lot of engagement on social messaging. Um, and that's a really critical part of our brand because um, for us, it's very important to provide support kind of before, during, and after someone interacts with one of our products or services. So all of those fall under my remit. So it, it's, uh, it's quite wide and I have a, a team with a wide range of skills. How big's the team, Jennifer? I have seven people on my team. So oh. relative uh, for the amount of things we cover, it's small. Um, <laughs> obviously, globally, we have 11,000 team members in MSI um, yeah. and uh, we are supporting the country program. So a lot of the work on the ground is being done by the country programs and we're supporting that. And in your team of seven, is there a commonality of professional behaviors or does everybody bring something different to the team? Um, I think everyone brings something a little bit different. Um, we kind of, we have a mix of introverts and extroverts. We have um, people who are more like in the moment problem solvers and perhaps more people who are more look ahead strategic thinkers. But it's really nice to have that. Um, yeah. They complement one another quite nicely um, and, and they help each other. And what would you say is, is, if you like, your traits as a manager and how do you like to be managed? Um, as a manager, uh, I tend to give people a bit of space. Um, I think, you know, there's a journey you go on as a manager from you might be more directing in the beginning and it's kind of moving towards coaching as your team grows in confidence, as they feel um, comfortable in what they're doing. Um, and, and nurturing that and getting them to be able to come up with more ideas on their own and support them in that, but also, you know, feeding them a bit of energy, feeding them creativity. Um, and I think I, I kind of like to be managed that same way, you know, um, I don't want a micromanager, but I, at the same time, when I really need, you know, I'm a, I'm a verbal thinker, right? So when I, when I want help with an idea, I really do appreciate a, a manager who will sit with me and, and just think out loud a little bit, help me figure sure. things out. So I get that. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar, actually. I like, one of the things, actually, I should say for the listener, we're recording in probably about month four of lockdown. We've, we're easing out of UK lockdown. But one of the things that I've really enjoyed is that presenteeism about being in the office, but also the fact that I have a colleague called Sophie, and poor Sophie would hear every single one of my ideas. And that kind of meant that Sophie was either responsible of that idea going anywhere or nowhere. Whereas at least now we're working remotely, you kind of put your ideas to more people. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and actually different people are, are collaborating and people have been collegiate in whole different ways. It's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think, you know, my team does this for me and I do this for my manager, but filtering is really key because yeah. with someone who's a verbal thinker, you do get too many ideas and, yeah. and, and, and you can walk out of a meeting with my manager being quite overwhelmed with ideas. And I have to kind of say, right, okay, there's the 20% I'm going to actually take forward and the rest are nice to think about for later. Um, and that's important as well so that you can um, manage your time and not feel overwhelmed. Completely. Would you say that in your professional career, you've had a mentor, would you say, and do you mentor anybody? Um, I would say, you know, potentially my current boss is, is a bit of a mentor. Um, I haven't had a formal mentor. I've thought about it. Um, I think it would be, it would be nice to have. Uh, 
my boss comes from the commercial sector, actually. She had never worked in an NGO before, um, but she was quite high up, uh, for example, in Reckitt Bank Heezer. So she's got a huge range of marketing experience. And so that's been really fantastic for me in terms of bouncing ideas and seeing things through a different perspective or how she may have handled things um, in some of her previous roles. Um, and I think I balance that a lot by coming from having done a lot more nonprofit work and I can help we, we can meet in the middle, um, which, which is really nice because it helps make ideas a lot more exciting, but also pragmatic. It doesn't matter increasingly where one, I mean, it, it's really tough to get the balance right between new shiny toys and focusing on what you're great at as a team, as a business, as an, orga, as an organization. How do you get that balance right? How often should you be innovating? How, how do you stay focused? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think innovation for the sake of innovation is a bad idea. I think it, it can be very distracting and it, um, it's a drain because it takes a lot of work to get a new idea off the ground. And you know, when we, for example, we write proposals for donors, a lot of times you're being pushed to come up with something new um, and we struggle to keep up with that sometimes. And, and it, um, what we're pushing more for now is actually something that, that um, a lot of people in this sector call adaptive programming, which means it's, it's small adjustments and it's small innovations to say, what are a lot of what we're doing works, um, but could it be a little bit better? Yeah, it probably could. And there are small things we could do or, or small things we could introduce into that process, which would make it better. Um, and I was reading an article recently about um, an organization in the US who has been very, very successful. And they, they said our success was based on thousands of 0.1% micro changes. Um, and I, I really like that quote because I thought um, actually sometimes that's that is success is is constantly improving and not necessarily chasing a shiny thing. That said, um, you know the the world is changing quickly, and sometimes you do also need to bring big new ideas and not get stuck in always doing things exactly the way you've done it um, and kind of keeping a keeping an eye on on preferences. Um, and making sure that innovation ideas are insight driven where they can be so that it's not, again, for the sake of, of an innovation, but actually something we think would really fill a need and fill a gap. Um, Jennifer, do you have an eye on side projects, on, on other opportunities, other projects, or, or, or do you find MSI is quite enough to keep you busy? <laughs> <laughs> um, it is quite enough to keep me busy at the moment. So we are in the midst of um, getting ready to launch our 2030 strategy. And so there've been a few quite big new ideas that have been um, identified to go into that. And I have been put in charge of some of that. So actually I, I kind of have side projects within MSI at the moment that are taking a lot of my time, but that are really new innovations. So that, that's actually been quite exciting. And that's, yeah. that's keeping me very busy at the moment. <laughs> quite well, rewarding, I imagine as well. Yeah. 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 Um, and final question for this section, Jennifer. Professionally, what would you say that you're known for? I always find it's a, a bit of a struggle to ask the, the people this question because it's almost like asking them to talk about themselves in the third person but except for that what would you say that you're known for professionally um i think i've known i'm known for energy um that's a comment i get a lot i bring a lot of energy to ideas and and you know positive energy in terms of bringing in new ideas helping people think through a problem um and also i think being very collaborative i don't um i'm very rarely refuse to help anyone right you know i will i will always find time um, to support someone if I can. And I, I do, you do meet a lot of people who say, you know, uh, I'm too busy to help you. I'm too busy to talk to you. And I, I don't think that's, you know, ever okay. I, I think there's always a way to find some time to support people. And, and, um, and that's, that's quite important to me. So I'm still here with Jennifer Gassner, who's the marketing director at Mary Stopes International, MSI. Second section of our chat tends to be about the role, about the business. Um, why don't we start with a big question in terms of cause for MSI and kind of bring to life the scale of almost the problem that MSI is looking to, to, to combat. How many people don't have access to contraception, Jennifer? Yeah, so that's a great question. And um, just as background, so MSI is a reproductive health nonprofit um, and our, our real mission is focused around ensuring access to safe contraceptive and safe abortion services. Um, and right now, there's actually brand new um, data that just came out from the Guttmacher Institute that says in, in low and middle income countries, there's about 218 million women who have unmet need for contraception. 
Um, and interestingly, this is disproportionately high amongst adolescents. So, you know, speaking about youth marketing, the unmet need with mm. under 20s is about 43% and versus about 24% um, with women in other uh, age groups. So, so that's very interesting as well. Um, and I think the other, the other aspect of that is that um, they estimate about 111 million unintended pregnancies every year in low and middle income countries, which equates to about 49% of all pregnancies. So when you think about that, that's one in two pregnancies was not actually planned at that time. And that's, wow. quite, that's quite amazing when you think about it. Yeah. And in terms of the, the journey of Mary Stokes, it, it's gone from one centre in London to now 600 centres worldwide. I mean, what, what's the focus of the organisation now and how has it gone on that huge journey? Yeah. So it, it is really interesting. So we started in 1976 and actually the story behind the founding is really interesting. So it was a doctor named Tim Black um, and he was working overseas quite a bit and he was working um, in a refugee camp where a, a, a woman had a baby that was very ill and he managed to save the baby. Um, and the woman cried and said, I, I, I actually would have rather that it died because I can't feed it. And he had this real epiphany moment um, of, you know, there's more to being a doctor than just always looking at the obvious kind of saving. There's also about like, what is the quality of the life that you can help people with? And so he realized there's not enough support for women to, to plan families that they can provide for, that they can feel proud of, um, that they can you know, feel confident that their children are gonna grow up strong and healthy and, and have a better future than they did. Um, and, and that's what most you know, women say to us is I just want my kids to have a better life than I had. Um, and so, you know, that was the start and, and, you know, they started in, uh, I think it was Bangladesh was the first country they went into, but we're in 37 countries now. Um, the 600 clinics is actually our standalone clinics, but actually we operate through a number of different ways. So we also operate teams that are mobile teams in the field, for example. So we actually have 8,000 service delivery teams around the world. Um, and they work, they, they, many of them move, so they go around into rural areas. Um, so we, we reach about 50,000 different service delivery sites um, a year. So it's quite huge. Um, wow. And yeah. that's been gradual, you know, like uh, it's just been building on success and building donor confidence and getting, bringing in more money and growing in response. Um, 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 crudely in the, in the third sector, in, when you're looking at charities, I suppose there's two kind of things that the marketing function can be doing. One is awareness raising and the other is fundraising. Is that broadly the scope of work uh, and what's the right balance? Is it, and is it different for every charity? So it is different. Um, for us, it's, my role is much more directly supporting the countries for their work in the field with women. So I, I don't do the fundraising. Um, we have separate external affairs um, teams that work specifically on that. We have a whole proposal development team. Um, so what I do is support them with the inputs to convince, you know, to create convincing cases uh, for that funding. Um, so I help them develop ideas. I help them um, think about uh, what are the needs in that country and what are the strategies we can undertake to, to achieve that. Um, so bring that to life for me. Sorry to interrupt, Jennifer. What's an example of an, an initiative that you're working on right now? Um, so uh, one of the big projects we work on right now is for the British government. Um, it's, called, it's called WISH. Um, it's about in women's integrated sexual health. Um, so it's uh, really focused on reaching underserved populations and we are leading the West African um, lot of countries that is part of that project. So it's really about helping our countries. How do we reach more um, people living in poverty? How do we reach more adolescents? How do we reach more um, people living with disabilities? And so thinking about what do we need to do differently? What do we need to adjust in our strategies? Um, how do we need to look at data to help us achieve that so that, that that's an example um, yeah. and what are we missing where are the gaps um, so it's 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 an ongoing process obviously um, you you can come up with an idea but you may need to refine it once it's actually in the field sure. and, and that's quite true of quite a lot of the projects that MSI work on isn't it that it's working with governments to, to strengthen health systems and influence policy is that 
that there's surely an art to that, right, in terms of talking to governments. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing many governments are very different to many other governments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're working off of whether that government, how supportive they are in their national strategies, whether they're putting funding behind things. So we have some countries where the government contracts us to do work and they will pay us directly. Um, that's still in the minority because a lot of uh, governments don't have the budget. Um, mm. But we do get broadly a lot of support. And we um, one of our biggest, fastest growing, what we call service delivery channels um, is called public sector support. So actually we are working directly with the public sector. We're training and quality assuring their teams in um, public health sites to be able to provide a wider range of contraceptive services, or in some cases also post-abortion care services to deal with um, the after effects of unsafe abortion. So, um, and that's, that's a very, very quick growing channel. So that type of thing also really helps us have a, a more solid, um, good relationship with the Ministry of Health. Um, we also have an advocacy team. So in many of our countries, we're partnering with other organizations to look at how we can remove policy and legal barriers. Um, so for example, uh, could be legislation around uh, the legality of abortion services and it, under what circumstances it might be legal. It could be about allowing um, a wider range of medicines into the country. It could be about um, reducing age of consent laws for young people to give them better access. Yeah. One thing from talking to you that seems to have very much of, of come to the fore in our conversation is the, the business-minded approach that you as an individual and the MSI are taking to achieve the aims. It's, I, I, I don't know quite how to phrase this, but there's almost a thought that the, the third sector, that charities almost are a, a lighter, fluffier way of working. I mean, we're, we're lucky enough at Rocket to work with a couple of charities and actually you have to be almost more business minded to achieve your goals, don't you? I mean, yeah. bring that to life for us. What are the processes like? You're, you're not thinking in terms of it would be good. You're thinking in terms of measurable results as well, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, we are. And many of our donors actually will also fund us based on measurable results and, and cost wow. efficiency is a big one. So, yeah. you know, we are we are all constantly reporting on how much does it cost us to deliver services? And that is something, um, you know, and we pride ourselves very, very highly on the quality of our services, but balancing the quality of the service with demands on, you know, how many people you're reaching, the type of people you're reaching, often reaching more vulnerable populations also takes additional time or takes additional money. So if, the further you're going out into very rural areas, the more time you're spending. Um, so, so getting that balance and kind of keeping that in mind, but also balancing that against quality is, um, is big. And, and I think what's going to be very interesting for us going into 2030 is that we are going to go even to more of a social business mentality where um, we will have certain kind of channels, particularly our own clinics, that will need to be self-sustaining. So they right. will need to operate as businesses. But the idea is the, any profit for that is reinvested in our other work. So essentially, it's one woman helping another um, in our countries. And that's, that's where we want to get to. And that, that's going to be a big part of, um, of our strategy going forward. So, so, so almost MSI are the, connect, the, the enablers. You're, you're helping these connections be formed and almost, it's an old-fashioned turn of phrase, isn't it? But it's fishing rod, not fish. And it's, you're, you're giving people the tools to support communities. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, like I said, in some cases, we're going in and doing direct service delivery. In other cases, mm. we're training, whether it's pharmacists, whether it's private sector providers, we have big networks of private sector providers that we train, um, or whether it's, you know, like our own outreach teams. Um, it's a bit of it's a bit of everything. But sure. you know, behavior change is a key element of that. So you are also trying to create an enabling environment. You know, we're about to kick off a big project in northern Nigeria looking at male engagement. So how do we create an environment where women feel comfortable having a conversation with their husband about spacing children? Um, yeah. and, and, and it is tricky because that eventually that does lead to uh, services, but it's, it's also about really about norm change, which is quite hard to measure. So you're also balancing the demand for cost efficiency, the demand for delivery of, of outputs um, against the real need for behavior change. And they do go hand in hand, but behavior change takes time. So getting that balance is also, you know, I, I, I often say to people, um, you know, if you work at, um, I'll say like Coca-Cola, like it's more about how many bottles did you sell? Whereas yeah. for us, it's, it's not always about that. You know, it's often about did I make it easier for that woman to have that conversation or did I make her yeah. more comfortable to access that service, um, even if she doesn't do it right now? Um, and so that, that's where I think the additional challenge lies for us.
you're currently working in 37 countries around the world and you made the point to me when we were having a back and forth before we started talking today that that actually not it's not often not an online audience where you're going to find these people it's it's funny because you're talking to somebody that runs a youth content and youth marketing business and obviously we we kind of start social first that's because the markets that we do tend to target are where people are online. But that's not always the case in markets that you're looking at. So sometimes the blend of channels is going to be very, very different, right? Yeah. Yeah, very. And we, you know, we have to take a really segment-driven approach, right? And, mm. and what we're seeing now is that we really need different skills um, and different strategies for our different service delivery channels. So, for example, our clinics are predominantly in, in urban areas. And so the type of woman, and it needs to move towards a sustainable business. So that's the type of woman where you, we are gonna see more middle income women, more educated women who are online. And we do need to capitalize much, much more on our digital approach in order to reach those women effectively. However, the bulk of our services are still being delivered to vulnerable populations who are often in quite remote communities um, who may not have access to a phone even. Um, if they do, it's unlikely to be a smartphone. Um, so the opportunities of them being online are limited um, and we do quite a lot with radio. We do quite a lot with um, community mobilization. So we train community health workers who will go out and have conversations in the community. We use satisfied clients a lot. So people who have used our services and they become our advocates in the community. And that's really important. Word of mouth is one of our number one drivers um, of, of people. So providing a good service, creating ha happy clients. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I think there's, there's an in-between, which um, is, is really interesting area to explore. And I think in places like the UK, you move so fast that you might, might not think about these as much. But um, what we do see is that um, in some countries, things like WhatsApp or things like Facebook actually are more available because they're often, you mm. know, we call them a... Um, a feature phone, right? People have those in-between phones where mm. they can actually access WhatsApp or they can actually access Facebook Messenger. And in some cases you have governments who make uh, with contracts where it might be free. So you might not need data because um, data can be very expensive in our country. So those also become really important um, purveyors of information. And so one of the things we're also trialing right now and a few other organizations have been doing the same is using WhatsApp networks to get information out. So yeah. and we often even start with our own employees. We put out good information and then we say, share it. And, and it's amazing how far that can go. Um, and it's not your traditional digital approach, but, but it kind of, it's quasi digital, you know, because it's, sure. it's, it's still phone based, but it's not online per se. And on top of this, getting the channel mix, on top of this understanding 37 different markets, you, MSI have also taken the approach to launch your own brand of affordable condoms and contraceptive pills. So that's a whole new challenge because you've then kind of got brand safety and people have to believe in the MSI brand as well as the information. Why, why was that an important step for MSI to take? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. So we, we kind of first entered the product space actually for uh, medication abortion, because what we were seeing is the trends in the market were that more and more and more women were actually buying products in a pharmacy and, and having abortions at home, not um, terminating a pregnancy through going to a clinic. And so that was the initial um, movement into that space to make sure there were safe products available. But we've realized that um, we need a basket of products to make that sustainable. And we have an opportunity to bring a wider range of high quality products to women in the sexual reproductive health space. Um, and so that's a bigger focus for us to kind of expand that product portfolio. Um, and brand safety is super important to us. So um, we have very high standards in terms of which suppliers we work with. Um, we're introducing shelf testing for our products so we can even pull products off the shelf to see whether it's being stored properly, um, whether it's still retaining its efficacy. Um, so you know, we do, we also have very high clinical standards for our, um, our clinics and, and the services provided there. So carrying those standards across and being known for high quality across all of, all of what we do will be really important for us going forward. Um, I, we're, we're living in a, 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 an age of COVID. I'm, I'm keen to ask about almost the effect that COVID has had on your organization's aims, but also the way that you're working as well. Um, feel free to start in whichever one, <laughs> whichever one comes first to mind. I mean, yeah, what's changed in the big wide world? 
Yeah, I think um, we've had to innovate quite a lot. Um, we're fortunate, as we talked about earlier, in having good relationships with a lot of governments. Um, many governments have uh, deemed sexual reproductive health as essential services, so we have been able to stay open in a lot of cases, but that's required a lot of innovation in how to keep our teams safe um, yeah. and even how to get clients to the services. So we had a lot of clients under lockdown who simply couldn't get from their home to a clinic, and we had to come up with creative ways of either bringing a service to them or helping them get to us. Um, so in some cases, we were providing transport, picking them up, or providing letters to help them navigate police checkpoints. Um, in, in Uganda, wow. we're actually partnering with, um, they're called Boda Boda. They're like little, um, uh, almost like little little motor cars, like three-wheel okay. motor cars. I can't think of the right word. Trishaws, kind of. Um, motorized so a ritual, trishaws. but with a motor. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, I I can't think of the right description of Boda Boda. Anyway, um, yeah. they um, we they have an app. Uh, so it's called and and we've actually partnered with them so that we can use the Boda Boda drivers to actually deliver products to women. Wow. And we have the contact centers to provide the counseling. So one of the things we are looking at, and um, and in Nigeria as well, we're doing direct delivery through couriers, for example, is is kind of telemedicine and telehealth, and thinking about how can we leverage our contact centers and how can we enable more contact to be done over the phone and products to be delivered directly. Obviously not all of our services can be done in that manner. Some of them require a provider involvement, um, but, but that is something that we've, I think, innovated much quicker on than we anticipated uh, because of yeah. COVID, uh, but, but it's still quite a steep learning curve. So we've, we've launched it in, in the UK with great success um, in South Africa, um, but we still, we have a few more countries planning to do it and it's, it's still a process of figuring out how that's going to work and, and whether that would be sustained long term and I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Um, and then what about internal structures and internal working arrangements? I mean I know just because we had a chat before we started recording you're, you're currently working from home so I'm, I'm guessing that that seems to be um, the, the way. Have you, have you ad adapted to Zoom? Have you ended up on Microsoft <laughs> Teams? Uh, what, how are you working and, and what's worked well and what hasn't worked so well? Yeah, I think um, as with many companies, you know, we, we were locked down at home. We continue. There's a, our office is open a few days a week, but it's optional to go in. Mm. And there are a few folks going in, but most of us are still working from home. I think in some ways it's been good in that we've, we've learned different ways of interacting. We've um, started trialing ways of doing workshops and training remotely. Um, we used to do a lot, a lot of travel to countries in terms of technical mm. assistance. We're not able to do that. So this year has been very different in terms of rethinking how we can support countries and finding ways to to be more effective and um, we recently had someone do a full training which is normally done in person over five days uh, all over uh, over Microsoft Teams uh, and it yeah. was actually very successful and it was one that we thought would be very difficult and, and it was managed so, so it's a steep learning curve um, I think what what you miss in that situation is it is harder to stay connected right I, I think everyone mm. misses a little bit the informal chats that happen Definitely. in the kitchen you know um, and knowing what other teams are doing, you know, it's, it's harder to kind of keep up with, um, I think it's okay within your own team, but um, keeping up with everything else is a bit trickier. And it sometimes means you do more, you're on the phone a lot more because you're trying to keep up and that can be quite exhausting as well. I think, yeah, I think culturally it's a funny one, isn't it? I think the one thing that is, I mean, we have not done this, so we're quite lucky, but onboarding people remotely, I, I can imagine being really really tough and then the other thing is exactly as you've identified this unquantifiable soaking up information by osmosis you know there's a it's even more important now to share almost everything you've been doing because otherwise people just will not know and it's really tough to get that out and and also actually I, I do think it's something of a British psyche, you, but it's getting people to show off more and say this is what I've been doing do you know what I mean it's, it's yeah. quite tough yeah. Yeah. And we do work on kind of um, like particularly within our department, we have regular catch ups where we just do a lot of that is just what are people doing? Share, share ideas and, and making sure you make time for that. Yeah, completely. Um, I want to ask a question about salaries within the charity sector, if that's all right. It might be slightly remiss of me if I didn't. L let's talk about it, it kind of goes back to the point I was making before. I still think there's a little bit of ignorance in the big wide world. I'm lucky enough to be involved in a charity about um, called Brainstorm, about funding research into brain tumours. I, I, we work for a few charities at Rocket as well. I know that they're run 
as professional businesses and often to attract the very best talent you need to pay the very best salaries bring that to life for me i mean that that's they're proper grown-up businesses aren't they it doesn't change they are and they i mean we work incredibly hard and Ooh. um I, i'm really privileged to work alongside some insanely smart experienced talented people um i, I think charity salaries are are fairly reasonable to be fair for the quality of people that you're paying. Um, and in fact, uh, a lot of the people who work for us um, could be making a lot more if they work somewhere else. And in fact, yeah. we have quite a lot of people, particularly in our senior, senior level um, kind of executives who were making a lot more money and took quite big pay cuts to work for us. So while their salary might look high for a, you know, for a quote unquote charity, actually um, that is quite reasonable for the skill and experience. Um, and, and it's hard because, People do work um, for passion, you know, and, and everyone that works at, at MSI is incredibly passionate about our mission and what we do. Um, but it's also important that you recognize skill and that you, you know, compensate people for incredibly hard work. And, um, you know, it's, it's not really fair to say that because you want to uh, work where your heart is that you should not be paid for that. Um, you know, uh, and, and I, like I said, I, I think we pay pretty reasonably and, and we, we benchmark, you know, quite a lot. So it is something you think about quite heavily, um, but it's tough, you know, cause there, there will always be criticisms. Um, but if you look at, you know, MSI for one, 93% um, of the money that we get goes straight to kind of um, direct programs. So yeah. it's only 7% that's kind of going into other, other things. So when you think about that, um, it, it's actually, you know, there are a lot of other NGOs that end up spending 20, 30% of their budget on fundraising. So basically you're paying for them to then ask for more money. <laughs> um, <laughs> we tend to be quite efficient. Um, so, you know, yeah. that, that's something to think about as well is, is, is don't just look at salaries, but really look at how does that uh, organization operate? Um, what do they deliver and what kind of, you know, if you look at the cost per service delivered, actually, those are the types of things that I think are more useful to look at because that's really the measure of how hard people are working. So MSI have been running for 44 years. It's, it's a lot. I know you've not been there for all of those. I'm being facetious. <laughs> I know. Do you think Mary Soaps have made mistakes and what mistakes have those been and how have you put them right? Oh, I mean, yes, I've been at Mari Stopes for almost seven years. Mm. Um, I think that um, everybody makes mistakes and we are learning and we are growing. And I think um, we, we have been very, very focused um, on, you know, we are very narrow in what we deliver. And I think that, that has sometimes been a challenge in terms of not always being caught up with the, the kind of best trends. Um, and, and I think that is something we are starting to, to shift a little bit more and we're starting to be, a, we're thinking a little bit more widely in our 2030 strategy in terms of what do we need to do differently. Um, but I think we could have perhaps started doing some of that earlier. Um, and we, we do lock ourselves into a, a narrow remit. Um, so th that will start to shift. Um, and I think, you know, we've made mistakes in the past of perhaps not always listening to the audiences that we're working with and, and developing things or not always getting the right stakeholders on board. Um, you know, so we have had instances where there has been backlash um, against yeah. things we're doing. We've been chased out of communities because we didn't do the right engagement um, to, to help people understand what we're doing, why we're there. Um, and we work in a stigmatized field, you know, um, reproductive health overall is just a very tricky one. And I yeah. know we're going to talk in a minute about, particularly about youth, um, but you know, youth and reproductive health is a massive taboo in a lot of our yeah. countries where we work. And so, um, you know, getting that right and getting the messaging and how we approach that has taken us time. And, and we, we're doing really well on that, but I won't say we, we did it right. Um, you know, we literally were chased out of communities in some cases yeah. in the beginning because we weren't engaging the right people. We, we didn't frame it appropriately. So final point, if you like, in this section, give, it, give us an example of something that you've discovered um, about a community and, and how you've helped that community. And also I'm keen for a bit of future gazing. So what are the next exciting things that MSI are looking to deliver and achieve? Good question. Things I've discovered. I mean, there's, it's an endless, endless list, I think. Um, trying to think of just one. Um, I mean, mm. I think, I think what, what is really interesting is 
we've spent a lot of time looking at um, the different segments within uh, women and how they might think about family planning. Um, and it's been very interesting to, we, we did a big insight and segmentation study back in 2014. And, and one of the things, for example, that we, we looked at within, the, within youth, or I should say, um, we call them pre-children, so young people without children, um, is that there's two incredibly different groups. And obviously it goes much further than two, but you know, for the sake of trying to manage it, we, we had two different groups. Um, one, which we called aspiring, because it was really, they're very much focused on um, what do I want to achieve? What do I want to do before I start having kids? I, I want to finish school. I want to get a new job. I want to um, make money or you know, save for something. Um, but there's a second group and this is critical. And I mean, although you know this, it's good to have it reinforced is there's quite a lot for whom their aspiration is to be a mom. And you know, that's mm. what they want. And, and, but that might not mean they want a child right now because they might not yeah. be married and it might be unacceptable to have a child before marriage. However, ultimately that is their aspiration. And so when you look at a lot of youth marketing in, um, in the UK or the US, it is very aspiration driven. It is very urban. Um, and that isn't gonna work. Uh, and, and making it relevant to girls with really different aspirations and talking about uh, contraception to someone who's, who's big, goal is to be a mom um, is, a, is a very different challenge. And I think that's been, um, you know, we have been working quite a lot on, on how, to, how to adjust messaging, um, who are the key stakeholders that you need to be um, bringing into the programming to get that right. And I, I think that's been a really interesting learning. Um, yeah. and I think people don't realize, you know, I'll, I'll give one example. In Nigeria, we did a study um, in 2014 that told us 73% of people think a woman has no value in society if she can't have children. Wow. And, 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 and so that's a context you have to wrap your head around. I mean, yeah. It's not what we're used to um, in, in, in the UK or the US. It, mm. it, it's, it's, it's different. And, and there's, um, there's reasons for that. And they make a lot of sense. But you also have to contextualize the pressure that that creates um, and how you can um, talk about contraception and reproductive health without um, seeming like you're disregarding or disrespecting the norms of a group and, and balancing those two and making it, for example, about child spacing. You know, how do you make sure your kids are healthy? How do you make sure your family and um, uh, is well taken care of and provided for and kind of, you know, shifting those slightly, but still recognizing it's, it's very challenging. So the final section of the rocket fuel interview podcast is all about actionable takeaways, some insights, some some thinking that this week's guests can give to our audience of people that work in youth marketing, youth culture. Um, I'm here with Jan Jennifer. Jennifer Gassner is the marketing director of Mary Stokes International. Let's start with a big, wide ranging question first, Jennifer. What do you know about youth or young audiences? Um, I say the biggest thing we know is that they're not homogenous. <laughs> um, we see very, very different needs and challenges, um, and particularly in our work, because you are ranging from very urban um, youth to very rural. You know, a lot of the, the conventional research and, and um, insights coming out uh, when you look at global, uh, you know, articles and things don't really apply. So using mm. things like Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z is not very helpful um, because the behaviors that we often see are quite different and can, can vary considerably. So, um, you know, that's the big thing for me is really being able to get the right insights to, to think about how you speak differently to different groups of young people um, and how you reach them. Um, and yet, you know, there are some universal points um, uh, around their desire to, um, to get respect in the community, their desire to have some level of independence um, but what that actually looks like might look very different in different contexts. You, you've already preempted to part of the next question, which was going to be around what do you think is important to young audiences? Um, you, you've already said kind of that respect piece. So that, are there are other things that we should be looking out for that, that are held dear to, to youth audiences. Um, I think it, you know, in some respects, it's, it's, the, it's the classic things. It's, it's the peer support. Um, mm. And it's it's the community support. So they want to feel that um, what they're what they're doing is not going to cause them to be 
isolated or ostracized. Um, we've kind of, our, our youth strategy is three pillars. So we talk about, um, you know, creating demand and making it desirable to to want to, you know, thinking about things like contraception as part of your lifestyle. So it's not a health choice. It's actually a lifestyle choice of where do I want to be right now? What do I want to achieve? How am I going to shape where I go? And what are the mm. steps I need to take to get there? You know, and that's a key part of the kind of make it desirable. And as I said, aspirations vary widely. So, so the way you tailor that would look quite different. The second piece is what we call um, enabling environment or make it normal right? Make it normal, make it okay for a young person to go access a reproductive health service. It's still not in many contexts. So working with community leaders, creating buy-in, framing it as, you know, you are supporting young people in your community to have a better future. It's not about, you know, you often get people saying, oh, you're encouraging people to have sex, you know, and you're not, they're having sex. Mm. <laughs> we're, we're, we're helping them, you know, we're helping manage that in a way that they can actually still achieve what they want and still have a better future. They can stay in school. They can, um, you know, they can work longer. They can, you know, be what they want to be. Um, and the third pillar is um, accessible services. So it's about making it easy to actually go to these services. You know, sometimes uh, we bring services to where young people are. We might serve them first. Um, we do a lot of training with providers because we find that's a huge barrier is how providers feel about young people, the way they talk to them. We've had providers who, who say, oh, I, I'm like their mother. Um, you know, I, I want to be their mother. And the young people say, I don't want a mother. I want mm. a nurse. You know, I, yeah. I, 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 I want to be counseled appropriately. I don't want you to talk to me like you're my mother. You know, and so bridging that gap of like, uh, how do young people want to be spoken to? And um, what, is, what is your role? You know, because it is hard for health providers, I think, to, um, to separate their role as a mother or an auntie or a, a, a respected person in the community Such versus just the nurse point. in that moment. You know, yeah, the, very the hard. tone of communication is almost as important as the message when you're talking yeah. about something as serious as this. That's a really yeah. good point. What, what do you think has changed about the way young audiences have behaved and what do you think will change next um i do think you know in our context what has probably changed most is kind of where they look for information and what information they trust and i think that changes very quickly and that's that's harder to keep up with in terms of right. um you know it used to be okay. I'll, we ask. I ask my auntie. I ask uh, my my sister or my cousin. Um, but now, as as that access to information grows and improves, um, they they look in unexpected places. You know, we had um, I had a, one girl in Kenya say, "Oh, I I follow a lot of feminist um, you know people on Twitter, and when I have a question, I ask them." And you know, it's the kind of thing where I thought, okay, I wouldn't have yeah. thought of asking them questions about SRH, but you know, it's 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 trying to keep up with what where do people look and and what do they see as accessible. And that that brings a whole other thing in terms of your the the point you raised about um, kind of behaviour change and having the right information out there because if the wrong information is out there, when I, mean, I know we've got this far into a conversation without using the phrase fake news, but it really means that it it almost demands an additional media literacy of even the most vulnerable people sometimes, doesn't it? Which yeah. is a hard thing to do. It is. And I mean, we talked about what's up earlier, but that's like mm. one of the biggest drivers of fake news is, you know, people yeah. just spreading rumors. And that's one of the reasons that we're trialing more use of that to actually spread good information. Um, and the other thing we find is that the, the, the bad stories, the scary stories, for example, about contraception are way more popular than the good ones. You know, people, yep. people are happy. They tend to not say very much. They're just quietly happy. Mm. When they're unhappy, they tell lots of people. So, you know, how do you encourage the positive narratives to come out? And that's, um, I think, part of what is harder as well, and getting, getting young people to, to be open and comfortable about that um, and share good information on a topic that might be quite embarrassing um, or sensitive. Yeah. Jennifer, I won't ask you to name names and I won't ask you to, to point the finger um, unless you really want to. But do you think there are kind of brands and organizations that get it very wrong and brands and organizations that get it very right? I mean, yeah, it's a very broad question. I would say mm. um, it's really tricky in this day and age because um, especially digitally, it's brutal. And, and there's always gonna be somebody who's angry with you for whatever you say. Um, so I think um, broadly, uh, there are brands, you know, the brands that really listen and get insights first um, and tap into something like quite, um, I mean, maybe it's an obvious one, but I think one that resonated so well with so many women, for example, was the Dove Natural Beauty campaign, because it just really tapped into something that was, um, 
I think underlying for so many women in terms of what you see in the fashion industry and you know makeup and things and but actually how that undermined women's confidence and actually tapping into that and, and that is something that I think is very hard to get upset about because it is it's it's really um, resonates at, at such an, uh, a deep level with so many people but I do think you see a lot of people who who don't know their audience well enough um, and who, who are trying to tap in or trying to be funny, for example, and it ends up just being really obnoxious. Um, I, I, will, I will be kind and not name names, but I'm sure you've <laughs> seen a few examples of that in the news recently where they've, you know, got it horrendously wrong. Um, yep. And it's just actually hurt them more than it helped. And then you're, you just, you know, you end up backtracking. So I think, um, you know, in the, in the drive to be trendy, um, sometimes you can go very, very wrong with the brands. So, Jennifer, what final thing is, is there one takeaway, either from our conversation that we've had, or because my questions have been a bit rubbish, and there's something that you're desperate to communicate to our audience, that we haven't covered? Is there a single takeaway, a single point, a single thing that you mentioned that you really want everybody to walk away with? Good question. Um, if, it, if it comes down to, to my passion, I would say... Um, stand up for um, women's reproductive rights because they're under attack. And yeah. I know that's not a marketing statement, but actually uh, people take it for granted. And, um, and, and the, the, the attention is shifting away from it. Um, even yeah. in the UK, we're seeing less and less access to contraception. We've had a lot of women coming to us who have un been able, unable to access it, particularly due to COVID. Um, very few GPs who want to offer long-acting methods anymore. The waiting lists are sometimes eight, nine weeks um, to be able to get that. So, you know, even where you think that's easy um, in places like the UK where you think, oh, it's not, not a concern. Um, it, the, when you stop paying attention, that's when things start to, to fall down. So I, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to no. be a straight up marketer and say, that's what I want as the takeaway is um, please pay attention because uh, it, it's so important um, globally. And I think uh, as so many things can distract us um, fundamentally, having women be able to choose um, how they can provide for their family actually impacts on so much of our, our problems today. You know, it impacts on so much of food security and, and other things like that, that it is something that we have to remember to, to keep thinking about and supporting. It's um, a really important and a really poignant point n note to leave this conversation on. Um, Jennifer, where can people find out more about you if indeed you want them to find out more about you? <laughs> and where can they f find out more about Mary Stokes International? Um, you can go to our website, which is um, www.marystopes.org. Um, I am on LinkedIn, which people are welcome to look me up. Um, and uh, I'm also on Twitter. So if people want to learn more, they are welcome to follow me. Brilliant. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been, yeah, a fascinating discussion. Um, I hope we've got the balance right in terms of the serious points and, and finding out more about how the organisation works as well as how you get the messages to the people you need to get them to. So thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat. Thank you so much. I hope, I hope you learned something new. <laughs>I think you'll agree that was a fascinating chat. That was um, Jen from Mary Stopes International. We're lucky enough at Rocket to have gone on to work with Jen and her team on a project that we're just pulling together now. I think some of the themes that were brought up there were incredible and also learning about the different considerations. Um, when you think about other territories and you think about places that don't all operate in the same way that we do. Stay tuned to Rocket Fuel. We've got another interview next week. This is our third series. We always want to hear your feedback. We're at we are Rocket across all social media, or you can find me at James Erskine, uh, E-R-S-K-I-N-E on Twitter. Next week, we're going to hear from Marielle from Galdem. Fascinating brand, fascinating story. But in the meantime, give us a five-star review. Recommend this podcast to someone who you think might like it. But stay tuned for more Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.